This is brought to you by the Another World is Possible podcast, originating in Boston, Massachusetts. Chapter 7 of Homage to Catalonia, written by George Orwell. Chapter 7 One afternoon, Benjamin told us that he wanted 15 volunteers. The attack on the fascist redoubt, which had been called off on the previous occasion, was to be carried out tonight. I oiled my ten Mexican cartridges, dirtied my bayonet, things give your position away if they flash too much, and packed up a hunk of bread, three inches of red sausage, and a cigar, which my wife had sent from Barcelona, and which I had been hoarding for a long time. Bombs were served out, three to a man. The Spanish government had at last succeeded in producing a decent bomb. It was on the principle of a Mills bomb, but with two pins instead of one. After you had pulled the pins out, there was an interval of seven seconds before the bomb exploded. Its chief disadvantage was that in one, that one pin was very stiff and the other very loose, so that you had the choice of leaving both pins in place and being able to, unable to pull the stiff one out in a moment of emergency, or pulling out the stiff one beforehand and being in a constant stew lest the thing should explode in your pocket. But it was a handy little bomb to throw. A little before midnight, Benjamin led the fifteen of us down to Torre Fabion. Ever since evening, the rain had been pelting down. The irrigation ditches were brimming over, and every time you stumbled into one, you were in water up to your waist. In the pitch darkness and sheeting rain in the farmyard, a dim mass of men were waiting. Cop addressed us, first in Spanish, then in English and explained the plan of attack. The fascist line here made an L-bend, and the parapet we were to attack lay on rising ground at the corner of the L. About thirty of us, half English and half Spanish, under the command of Jorge Roca, our battalion commander, a battalion in the militia was about four hundred men, and Benjamin were to creep up and cut the fascist wire. Jorge would fling the first bomb as a signal. Then the rest of us were to send in a rain of bombs, drive the fascists out of the parapet, and seize it before they could rally. Simultaneously, 70 shock troopers were to assault the next fascist position, which lay 200 yards to the right of the other, joined to it by a communication trench. To prevent us from shooting each other in the darkness, white armlets would be worn. At this moment, a messenger arrived to say that there were no white armlets. Out of the darkness, a plaintive voice suggested, Couldn't we arrange for the fascists to wear white armlets instead? There was an hour or two to put in. The barn over the mule stable was so wrecked by shellfire that you could not move about it, in, about in it without a light. Half the floor had been torn away by a plunging shell, and there was a twenty-foot drop to, onto the stones beneath. Someone found a pick and levered a burst plank out of the floor, and in a few minutes we had got a fire alight, and our drenched clothes were steaming. Someone else produced a pack of cards. A rumor, one of these those mysterious rumors that are endemic in war, flew around that hot coffee with brandy in it was about to be served out. We filed eagerly down the... We fired filed eagerly down the almost collapsing staircase and wandered about round in the dark yard, inquiring where the coffee was to be found. 
Alas, there was no coffee. Instead, they called us together, ranged us into single file, and then Jorge and Benjamin set off rapidly into the darkness, the rest of us following. It was still raining and intensely dark, but the wind had dropped. The mud was unspeakable. The paths through the beet fields were simply a succession of lumps, as slippery as a greasy pole with huge pools everywhere. Long before we got to the place where we were to leave with our own parapet, everyone had fallen several times and our rifles were coated with mud. At the parapet, a small knot of men, our reserves, were waiting, and the doctor and a row of stretchers. We filed through the gap in the parapet and waded through another irrigation ditch. Splash, gurgle, once again in water up to your waist, with the filthy, slimy mud oozing over your bootstraps, your boot tops. On the grass outside, Jorge waited till we were all through. Then, bent almost double, he began creeping slowly forward. The fascist parapet was about 150 yards away. Our one chance of getting there was to move without noise. I was in front with Jorge and Benjamin, bent double, but with faces raised, we crept into the almost utter darkness at a pace that grew slower at every step. The rain beat lightly in our faces. When I glanced back, I could see the men who were nearest to me, a bunch of humped shapes like huge black mushrooms, gliding slowly forward. But every time I raised my head, Benjamin, close beside me, whispered fiercely in my ear, To keep the head down! To keep the head down! I could have told him that he needn't worry. I knew by experiment that on a dark night you could never see a man at twenty paces. It was far more important to go quietly. If they once hurt us, we were done for. They had only to spray the darkness with their machine guns, and there was nothing for it but to run or be massacred. But on the sodden ground, it was almost impossible to move quietly. Do what you would, your feet stuck to the mud, and every step you took was slop, 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 slop. And the devil of it was that the wind had dropped, and in spite of the rain, it was a very quiet night. Sounds would carry a long time, long way. There was a dreadful moment when I kicked against a tin and thought every fascist within miles must have heard it. But no, not a sound, no answering shot, no movement in the fascist lines. We crept onwards, always more slowly. I cannot convey to you the depth of my desire to get there, just to get within bombing distance before they hurt us. At such a time, you have not even any fear, only a tremendous, hopeless longing to get over the intervening ground. I have felt exactly the same thing when stalking a wild animal, the same agonized desire to get within range, the same dreamlike certainty that it was impossible, and how the difference stretched out. I knew the ground very well. It was barely 150 yards, and yet it seemed more like a mile. When you are creeping at that pace, you are aware, as an ant might be, of the enormous variations in the ground, the splendid patch of smooth grass here, the evil patch of sticky mud there, the tall rustling reeds that have got to be avoided, the heap of stones that almost always makes you give up hope because it seems impossible to get over it without noise. We had been creeping forward for such an age that I began to think we had gone the wrong way. Then, in the darkness, thin parallel lines of something blacker were faintly visible. It was the outer wire. The fascists had two lines of wire. 
Jorge knelt down, fumbled in his pocket. He had our only pair of wire cutters. Snip, snip, the trailing stuff was lifted delicately aside. We waited for the men at the back to close up. They seemed to be making a frightful noise. It might be fifty yards to the fascist parapet now. Still onwards, bent double. A stealthy step, lowering your foot as gently as a cat approaching a mouse hole. Then a pause to listen, then another step. Once I raised my head, in silence Benjamin put his hand behind my neck and pulled it violently down. I knew that the inner wire was barely twenty yards from the parapet. It seems to me conceivable that thirty men could get there unheard. Our breathing was enough to give us away. Yet, somehow, we did get there. The fascist parapet was visible now, a dim black mound looming high over above us. Once again, Jorge knelt and fumbled. Snip, snip. There was no way of cutting the stuff silently. So that was the inner wire. We crawled through it on all fours, and rather more rapidly. If we had time to deploy now, all was well. Jorge and Benjamin crawled across to the right, but the men behind, who were spread out, had to form into a single file to get through the narrow gap in the wire. And just as this moment, just as this moment, there was a flash and a bang in the fascist parapet. The sentry had heard us at last. Jorge poised himself on one knee and strung his arm like a bowler. Crash! His bomb burst somewhere over the parapet. At once, far more promptly than one would have thought it possible, a roar of fire, ten or twenty rifles burst out from the fascist parapet. They had been waiting for us, after all. Momentarily, you could see every sandbag in the lurid light. Men too far back were flinging their bombs, and some of them were fa falling short of the parapet. Every loophole seemed to be sprouting jets of flame. It is always hateful to be shot at in the dark. Every rifle flash seems to be pointed straight at yourself. But it was the bombs that were the worst. You cannot conceive the horror of these things till you have seen one burst close to you in darkness. In the daytime, there is only the crash of the explosion. In the darkness, there is the blinding red glare as well. I had flung myself down at the first volley. All this while I was lying on my side in the greasy mud, wrestling savagely with the pin of a bomb. The damn thing would not come out. Finally, I realized that I was twisting it in the wrong direction. I got the pin out, rose to my knees, hurled the bomb, and threw myself down again. The bomb burst over to the right, outside the parapet. Fright had spoiled my aim. Just at this moment, another bomb burst right in front of me, so close that I could feel the heat of the explosion. I flattened myself out and dug my face into the mud so hard that I hurt my neck and thought I was wounded. Through the din, I heard an English voice behind me say quietly, I'm hit! The bomb had, in fact, wounded several people around me without touching myself. I rose to my knees and flung my second bomb. I forget where that one went. The fascists were firing. Our people behind were firing, and I was very conscious of being in the middle. I felt the blast of a shot and realized that a man was firing from immediately behind me. I stood up and shouted at him, Don't shoot at me, you bloody fool! At this moment, I saw that Benjamin, ten or fifteen yards to my right, was motioning to me with his arm. I ran across to him. It meant crossing the line of spouting loopholes, and as I went, I clasped my left hand over my cheek, an idiotic gesture, as though one's hand could stop a bullet, but I had a horror of being hit in the face. 
Benjamin was kneeling on one knee with a pleased, devilish sort of expression on his face and firing carefully at the rifle flashes with its automatic pistol. Jorge had dropped wounded at the first volley and was somewhere out of sight. I knelt beside Benjamin, pulled the pin out of my third bomb and flung it. Ah, no doubt about it this time. The bomb crashed inside the parapet at the corner just by the machine gun nest. The fascist fire seemed to have slackened very suddenly. Benjamin leapt to his feet and shouted, Forward! Charge! We dashed up the short, steep slope on which the parapet stood. I say dashed. Lumbered would be a better word. The fact is you, that you can't move fast when you are sodden and mudded from head to foot and weighted down with a heavy rifle and bayonet and a hundred and fifty cartridges. I took it for granted that there would be a fascist waiting for me at the top. If he fired at that range, he could not miss me. And yet somehow I never expected him to fire only to try for me with his bayonet. I seemed to feel in advance the sensation of our bayonets crossing, and I wondered whether his arm would be stronger than mine. However, there was no fascist waiting. With the vague feeling of relief, I found that it was a low parapet, and the sandbags gave a good foothold. As a rule, they are difficult to get over. Everything inside was smashed to pieces, beams flung all over the place, and great shards of urolite slittered everywhere. Our bombs had wrecked all the huts and dugouts and still there was not a soul visible. I thought they would be lurking somewhere underground, and shouted in English. I could not think of any Spanish at the moment. Come on out of it! Surrender! No answer. Then a man, a shadowy figure in the half-light, skipped over the roof of one of the ruined huts and dashed away to the left. I started after him, prodding my bayonet ineffectually in the darkness. As I rounded the corner of the hut, I saw a man, I don't know whether or not it was the same man I had seen before, fleeing up the communication trench that led to the other fascist position. I must have been very close to him, for I could see clearly, see him clearly. He was bareheaded and seemed to have nothing on except the blanket which he was clutching around his shoulders. If I had fired, I could have blown him to pieces. But for fear of shooting one another, we had been ordered to own, use only bayonets once we were inside the parapet. In any case, I never even thought of firing. Instead, my mind leapt backwards twenty years to our boxing instructor at school, showing me in vivid, vivid pantomime how he had bayoneted a Turk at the Dardanelles. I gripped my rifle by the small of the butt and lunged at the man's back. He was just out of my reach, another lunge, still out of reach, and for a little distance we proceeded like this, he rushing up the trench and I after him on the ground above, prodding at his shoulder blades and never quite getting there. A comic memory for me to look back upon, though I suppose it seemed less comic to him. Of course, he knew the ground better than I had, and better than I, and had soon slipped away from me. When I came back, the position was full of shouting men. The noise of firing had lessened somewhat. The fascists were still pouring a heavy fire at us from three sides, but it was coming from a greater distance. We had driven them back for the time being. I remember saying in an oracular manner, We can hold this place for half an hour, not more. I don't see why I picked on half an hour. Looking over the right-hand parapet, you could see innumerable greenish rifle flashes stabbing the darkness. But they were a long way back, a hundred or two hundred yards. Our job now was to search the position and loot anything that was worth looting.
Benjamin and some others were already scrabbling among the ruins of a big hut or dugout in the middle of the position. Benjamin staggered excitedly through the ruined roof, tugging at the rope handle of an ammunition box. Comrades! Ammunition! Plenty of ammunition here! We don't want ammunition, said a voice. We want rifles! This was true. Half our rifles were jammed with mud and unusable. They could be cleaned, but it is dangerous to take the bolt out of a rifle in the darkness. You put it down somewhere, and then you lose it. I had a tiny electric torch with my, with, which my wife had managed to buy in Barcelona. Otherwise, we had no light of any description between us. A few men with good rifles began a desultory fire at the flashes in the distance. No one dared fire too rapidly. Even the best of the rifles were liable to jam if they got too hot. There were about 16 of us inside the parapet, including one or two who were wounded. A number of wounded, English and Spanish, were lying outside. Patrick O'Hara, a Belfast Irishman who had had some training in first aid, went to and fro with packets of bandages, binding up the wounded men and, of course, being shot at every time he returned to the parapet. In spite of his indignant shouts of, POEM! We began searching the position. There were several dead men lying about, but I did not stop to examine them. The thing I was after was the machine gun. All the while, when we were li lying outside, I had been wondering vaguely why the gun did not fire. I flashed my torch inside the machine gun nest. A bitter disappointment. The gun was not there. Its tripod was there, in various boxes of ammunition and spare parts, but the gun was gone. They must have unscrewed it and carried it off at the first alarm. No doubt they were acting under orders, but it was a stupid and cowardly thing to do, for if they had kept the gun in place, they could have slaughtered the whole lot of us. We were furious. We had set our hearts on capturing a machine gun. We poked here and there, but did not find anything of much value. There were quantities of fascist bombs lying around about, a rather inferior type of bomb, which he touched off by pulling a string, and I put a couple of them in my pocket as souvenirs. It was impossible not to be struck by the bare misery of the fascist dugouts. The litter of spare clothes, books, food, petty personal belongings that you saw in our own dugouts was completely absent. These poor unpaid conscripts seemed to own nothing except blankets and a few soggy hunks of bread. Up at the far end, there was a small dugout which was partly above ground and had a tiny window. We flashed the torch through the window and instantly raised a cheer. A cylindrical object in a leather case, four feet high and six inches dashed around in six inches in diameter, was leaning against the wall, obviously the machine gun barrel. We dashed around and got in at the doorway to find that the thing in the leather case was not a machine gun, but something which and our weapon-starved army was even more precious. It was an enormous telescope, probably of at least 60 or 70 magnifications, with a folding tripod. Such telescopes simply did not exist on our side of the line, and they were desperately needed. We brought it out in triumph and leaned it against the parapet to be carried off after. At this moment, someone shouted that the fascists were closing in, Certainly the din of firing had grown very much louder, but it was obvious that the fascists would not counterattack from the right, which meant crossing no man's land and assaulting their own parapet. 
If they had any sense at all, they would come at us from inside the line. I went round to the other side of the dugouts. The position was roughly horseshoe shaped, with the dugouts in the middle, so that we had another parapet covering us on the left. A heavy fire was coming from that direction, but it did not matter greatly. The dangerous spot was straight in front, where there was no protection at all. A stream of bullets was passing just overhead. They must be coming from the other fascist position further up the line. Evidently, the shock troopers had not captured it after all. But this time, the noise was deafening. It was the unbroken, drum-like roar of massed rifles, which I, had, which I was used to hearing from a little distance. This was the first time I had been in the middle of it. And by now, of course, the firing had spread along the line for miles around. Douglas Thompson, with a wounded arm dangling useless at his side, was leaning against the parapet and firing one-handed at the flashes. Someone whose rifle had jammed was loading for him. There were four or five of us round this side. It was obvious what we must do. We must drag the sandbags from the front parapet and make a barricade across the unprotected side. And we had got to be quick. The fire was high at present, but they might lower it at any moment. By the flashes all round, I could see that we had a hundred or two hundred men against us. We began wrenching the sandbags loose, carrying them twenty yards forward and dumping them into a rough heap. It was a vile job. They were big sandbags, weighing a hundred weight each, and it took every ounce of your strength to pry them loose. Then the and then the rotten sacking sack split and the damp earth cascaded all over you, down your neck and up your sleeves. I remember feeling a deep horror at everything. The chaos, the darkness, the frightful din, the slithering to and fro in the mud, the struggles with the bursting sandbags, all the time encumbered with my rifle, which I dared not put down for fear of losing it. I even shouted to someone as we staggered along the bag with the bag between us. This is war, isn't it bloody? Suddenly a succession of tall figures came leaping over the front parapet. As they came nearer we saw that they wore the uniform of the shock troopers, and we cheered, thinking they were reinforcements. However, there were only four of them, three Germans and a Spaniard. We heard afterwards what had happened to the shock troopers. They did not know the ground, and in the darkness had been led to the wrong place, where they were caught on the fascist wire, and numbers of them were shot down. These were four who had got lost, luckily for themselves. The Germans did not speak a word of English, French, or Spanish. With difficulty and much gesticulation, we explained what we were doing, and got them to help us in building the barricade. The fascist had brought up a machine gun now. You could see it spinning like a squib, a hundred or two hundred yards away. The bullets came over us with a steady, frosty crackle. Before long, we had flung enough sandbags into place to make a low breastwork behind which a few men who were on this side of the position could lie down and fire. I was kneeling behind them. A mortar shell whizzed over and crashed somewhere in no man's land. That was another danger but it would take them some minutes to find our range. Now that we had finished wrestling with those beastly sandbags, it was not bad fun in a way. The noise, the darkness, the flashes approaching, our own men blazing back at the flashes. One even had time to think a little. I remember wondering whether I was frightened, 
and decided that I was not. Outside, where I was probably in less danger, I had been half sick with fright. Suddenly, there was another shout that the fascists were closing in. There was no doubt about it this time. The rifle flashes were much nearer. I saw a flash hardly twenty yards away. Obviously, they were working their way up the communication trench. At twenty yards, they were within easy bombing range. There were eight or nine of us bunched together, and a single well-placed bomb <clears throat> would blow us all to fragments. Bob Smilly, the blood running down his face from a small wound, sprang to his knee and flung a bomb. We cowered, waiting for the crash. The fuse fizzled red as it sailed through the air, but the bomb failed to explode. At least a quarter of these bombs were duds. I had no bombs left except the fascist ones, and I was not certain how these worked. I shouted to the others to know if anyone had a bomb to spare. Douglas Moyle felt in his pocket and passed one across. I flung it and threw myself on my face. By one of those strokes of luck that happened about once in a year, I managed to drop the bomb almost exactly where the rifle had flashed. There was a roar of the explosion and then instantly a diabolical outcry of screams and groans. We had got one of them anyway. I didn't know whether he was killed, but certainly he was badly hurt. Poor wretch. Poor wretch. I felt in a vague I felt a vague sorrow as I heard him screaming. But at the same instant, in the dim light dim light of the rifle flashes, I saw or thought I saw a figure standing near the place where the rifle had flashed. I threw up my rifle and let fly. Another scream, but I think it was still the effect of the bomb. Several more bombs were thrown. The next rifle flashes we saw were a long way off, a hundred yards or more. So we had driven them back, temporarily, at least. Everyone began cursing and saying why the hell didn't they send us some supports. With a submachine gun or twenty men with clean rifles, we could hold this place against a battalion. At this moment, Paddy Donovan, who was second in command to Benjamin, and had been sent back for orders, climbed over the front parapet. Hi, come on out of it. All men to retire at once. What? Retire. Get out of it. Why? Orders. Back to our lines. Double quick. People were already climbing over the front parapet. Several of them were struggling with a heavy ammunition box. My mind flew to the telescope, which I had left leaning against the parapet on the other side of the position. But at this moment I saw that the four shock troopers, acting, I suppose, on some mysterious orders they had received beforehand, had begun running up the communication trench. They led to the other fascist position, and, if they got there, to certain death. They were disappearing into the darkness. I ran after them, trying to think of the Spanish for retire. Finally I shouted, Atras! Atras! which perhaps conveyed the right meaning. The Spaniard understood it and brought the others back. Paddy was waiting at the parapet. Come on, hurry up! But the, the telescope! But the telescope! Benjamin's waiting outside. We climbed out. <clears throat> Paddy held the wire aside for me. As soon as we got away from the shelter of the fascist parapet, we were under a devilish fire that seemed to be coming at us from every direction. Part of it, I do not doubt, came from our own side for everyone was firing all along the line. Whichever way we turned, a fresh stream of bullets swept past. We were driven this way and that, in the darkness, like a, a flock of sheep. It did not make it any easier that we were dragging a captured box of ammunition, 
one of those box, boxes that held 1,750 rounds and weigh about 108 besides the box of bombs and several fascist rifles. In a few minutes, although the distance from parapet to parapet was not 200 yards, and most of us knew the ground, we were completely lost. We found ourselves slithering about in a muddy field, knowing nothing except that bullets were coming from both sides. There was no moon to go by, but the sky was growing a little lighter. Our lines lay east of Huesca. I wanted to stay where we were till the first crack of dawn showed us which was east and which was west, but the others were against it. We slithered onwards, changing our direction several times and taking it in turns to haul at the ammunition box. At last, we saw the low, flat line of a parapet looming in front of us. It might be ours, or it might be the fascists. Nobody had the dimmest idea which way we were going. Benjamin crawled on his belly through some tall, whitish weed till he was about twenty yards from the parapet and tried a challenge. A shout of, Palm! answered him. We jumped to our feet, found our way along the parapet, <clears throat> slopped once more through the irrigation ditch, splash, gurgle, and were in safety. Cop was waiting inside the parapet with a few Spaniards. The doctor and the stretchers were gone. It appeared that all the wounded had been got in except Jorge and one of our own men, Heilston by name, who were missing. Cop was pacing up and down, very pale. Even the fat folds at the back of his neck were pale. He was paying no attention to the bullets that streamed over the low parapet and cracked close to his head. Most of us were squatting behind the parapet for cover. Cop was muttering, Jorge, cono, Jorge. And then in English, if Jorge is gone, it is terrible, terrible. Jorge was his personal friend and one of his best officers. Suddenly, he turned to us and asked for five volunteers, two English and three Spanish, to go and look for the missing men. Moyle and I volunteered with three Spaniards. As we got outside, <clears throat> the Spaniards murmured that it was getting dangerously light. This was true enough. The sky was dimly blue. There was a tremendous noise of excited voices coming from the fascist re redoubt. Evidently, they had reoccupied the place in much greater force than before. We were sixty or seventy yards from the parapet when they must have seen or heard us, for they sent over a heavy burst of fire which made us drop on our faces. One of them flung a bomb over the parapet, a sure sign of panic. We were lying in the grass, waiting for an opportunity to move on, when we heard, or thought we heard, I have no doubt it was pure imagination, but it seemed real enough at the time, that the fascist voices were much closer. They had left the parapet, and were coming after us. Run! I yelled to Moyle, and jumped to my feet. <clears throat> and heavens, how I ran! I had thought earlier in the night that you can't run when you are sodden from head to foot, and weighed down with a rifle and cartridges. I learn now you can always run when you think you have fifty or a hundred armed men after you. But if I could run fast, others could run faster. In my flight, something that might have been a shower of meteors sped past me. It was the three Spaniards, who had been in front. They were back to our own parapet before they stopped, and I could catch up with them. The truth was that our nerves were all to pieces. I knew, however, that in a half-flight, one man is invisible where five are clearly visible, so I went back alone. I managed to get to the outer wire and search the ground as well as I could. 
which was not very well, for I had to lie on my belly. There was no sign of Jorge or Hiddlestone, so I crept back. We learned afterwards that both Jorge and Hiddlestone had been taken to the dressing station earlier. Jorge was lately wounded through the shoulder. Hiddlestone had received a dreadful wound, a bullet which traveled right up in, right up his left arm, breaking the bone in several places. As he lay helpless on the ground, a bomb had burst near him and torn various other parts of his body. He recovered, I am glad to say. Later, he told me that he had worked his way some distance lying on his back, then had clutched hold of a span of wounded Spaniard, and they had helped one another in. It was getting late now. Along the line for miles around, a ragged, meaningless fire was thundering, like the rain that goes on raining after a storm. I remember the desolate look of everything, the morasses of mud, the weeping poplar trees, the yellow water in the trench bottoms, and men's exhausted faces, unshaven, streaked with mud, and blackened to the eyes with smoke. When I got back to my dug, dugout, the three men I shared it with were already fast asleep. They had clung themselves down with all their equipment on, and their muddy rifles clutched against them. Everything was sodden inside the dugout as well as outside. The long searching I managed to collect enough chips of dry wood to make a tiny fire. Then I smoked the cigar which I had been hoarding and which, surprisingly enough, had not gotten broken during the night. Afterwards we learned that the action had been a success as such things go. It was merely a raid to make the fascists divert troops from the other side of Huesca, where the anarchists were attacking again. I had judged that the fascists had thrown a hundred or two hundred men into the counterattack, but a deserter told us later on that it was six hundred. I dare say he was lying. Deserters, for obvious reasons, often tried to curry favor. It was a great pity about the telescope. The thought of losing that beautiful bit of loot worries me even now. End of chapter 7 of Homage to Catalonia, written by George Orwell, brought to you by the Another World is Possible audio podcast.